I hope you're still in Hebrews chapter 1. I've been looking forward to this particular Sunday for a while. I've been uh, joking and teasing and perhaps hinting at the idea that eventually one day, Lord willing, we'll go through the book of Hebrews. Well, officially, uh, this is that morning. So we're starting our study on the, our long-awaited study sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And I've been really much uh, gathering all of my thoughts because there's a lot that could be said about the book of Hebrews. And there's a lot that has been said in the past. It's a book that is rich with truth, that is weighty in terms of its doctrine and the theology that it puts forward. It's a, do- a book that uh, in, in many ways is quite daunting in terms of the task that it presents the reader, in terms of getting everyone into the, what it wants, uh, what it desires that you see uh, out of all of its words and all of its illustrations. And indeed, a lot of commentators have spent a lot of time trying to dissect and and break down this particular book. But even with all of that, we could never truly drain all of the immense wealth and grace and truth that this book of Hebrews has. It's a book, again, of true depth. And I think one of the things that is so essential about Hebrews is that it forms this very consequential and indispensable link between the Old and the New Testaments. One of the most profound things that will help, I think, if understand, in understanding the book of Hebrews is if you sometimes keep uh, flipping back and forth between this and the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, as you might know, is that, is that book of law which we often skip over or we often try to uh, just get through as fast as we can in our Bible reading because it just seems that it's constantly talking about laws and rites and rituals and all these things that the people of Israel were, uh, in no short of terms, commanded by God to do in terms of worshiping him alone. It's a book, yes, of lots of rules and regulations, Leviticus is. But what we find here in Hebrews is essentially the author of this book is commentating on the book of Leviticus and showing us not only how all of those things find their fulfillment in Jesus, but how Jesus is so much better, so much better than all of those ways of communing with God and being close to God beforehand. Jesus truly is better. Indeed, that's the simple premise That the author of Hebrews everywhere tries to unravel and unfold and unpack. As 13 chapters he spends writing and and talking and and sort of uh, discussing that premise. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets, he says. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses and than Joshua and than Aaron. He's better than all the priests. He's better than all of the faithful that have gone before. In every single way conceivable, Jesus is. Is better. And he's better because he establishes this new and better covenant, a better covenant by which all are saved, as he says in chapter 7, to the uttermost. As a way of introduction, just turn there. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Hebrews 7, 22, notice what he says. This makes Jesus the guarantor or the, the, the one who can make sure a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. 
Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is better. Here specifically, as we'll get to perhaps in some weeks to come, I'm not sure. But he says here specifically, he's better than the priest because his priesthood doesn't have an end date. It is always continuing a perpetual priesthood that Jesus ministers to us. That's why he's better. And indeed, this theme carries throughout the whole book. This idea of Jesus being better or superior, you might see the word. Look at chapter 7, verse 19. Notice, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Notice chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Notice chapter 9, verse 23. One chapter over, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of, this, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Notice chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This, my friends, is constantly throughout this book, constantly given to us the better ministry that is represented in the purpose, or excuse me, in the person of Christ alone. Constantly, the author of this book is trying to get us to see just that. And the prevalence of this theme has led many to suggest, and I would concur, that Hebrews is almost like a sermon in and of itself. It's Sort of like a letter, but really, as we're going to see in a minute, there's not a lot of typical elements of a New Testament letter in this particular book. It's more like a sermon with 13 points. A sermon that perhaps, or perhaps a collection of sermons that was later turned into a book is what some have suggested that Hebrews is. And indeed, Hebrews is different. There's no author mentioned. There's not even a congregation mentioned. This is not the, the, the church of the Hebrews. It is a church perhaps made up of Hebrew Christians. But we don't know where they were or who they were or what they were enduring. What they were going through. And this leaves a lot for, for speculation, a lot for, theory, a lot for theory and a lot for just investigation. And not only about the author, about the audience. Go back to chapter 10. Those verses again, or I, I read one of them, but look at verse 32 again in chapter 10. Because I think this gives us perhaps the best sort of clue or indication as to who the author of this book, the preacher, if you will, was actually addressing. Notice what he says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in, in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Here, obviously, clearly, I think specifically, the preacher is addressing Hebrew Christians. 
Ones who, as he has just hinted at, had endured lots of ferocious trial and intense persecution for the faith that they now had. Because of who they were. They were those who had been converted and brought into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ specifically. But now, because of this persecution, some had become tempted to turn away. Some had become uh, uh, sort of convinced that they needed to leave all of those old rites and rituals or, uh, or actually flee back to all those rites and rituals of, of Judaism. Because, obviously, persecution because of the name of Christ is untenable with the faith as they perhaps were deceived into believing And indeed, if you read a lot of Hebrews, there's a lot of encouragement to hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our faith. Don't turn away. Don't be deceived in the the such. Because I think indeed this congregation was undergoing intense scrutiny and trial and persecution. For what they'd become to believe. And indeed, uh, in this day and age, this particular book or letter was uh, written around the early 60s to the late 60s AD. At which time, you might remember, was the time in which Emperor Nero of Rome came into office. And under his hand, under his thumb, the church suffered severely. In fact, under his reign, Christianity itself was a religion that was deemed a crime against the Roman state. Punishable, yes, by death. With that sort of threat, you can imagine. It's not hard to imagine, at least even for myself... Those within the church at least entertaining the notion to turn away from Christ. This new gospel had just come onto the scene and lit the world on fire. And already there were fires being caused because of those who believed in it. It might be easier just to go back to the old ways of doing things. Go back to Judaism. Go back to the rites and the rituals and the regulations of the law. And indeed, I think that's what the author here is trying to convey to the church. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Don't be swayed because of persecution. You have something so much better in Christ. But we can even sort of make this perhaps even more something that we have to ponder. Because not only does this church have the risk of execution looming over their heads, added to the weightiness of their moment is the fact that both Peter and Paul have been executed. By this time, most likely by the time this book was written, Nero himself had put to death both Peter and Paul. Which I'm sure caused no shortage of of frustration, but also fear in the hearts of all of those who belonged to the church. As its foremost voices and leaders were brutally murdered and put to death. All of that compiled on top of of one another, I think, makes this a moment in which the church is feeling the increased pressure from the government to go back to some old way of, of doing things, but also that now they are somewhat listless, somewhat leaderless. Who's going to lead the church? They felt paralyzed. Maybe perhaps they even felt like this is a bad idea. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? 
All of that is just to say I sympathize perhaps in some ways with those here in this church that the author is addressing being convinced that they needed to, to go back. This Christianity thing, it's not working. It's making my life harder. It's making everyone be put into jeopardy. Let's just go back to the old ways of doing stuff. It's easier for everyone. And the author here is saying no. We have something, we have something so much better in Jesus And you can be confident in it. You can be assured in it because of who Jesus is. The audience perhaps is just that. A group of Christians in the heat of suffering. Being tempted or swayed perhaps to relinquish their faith. But the author here remains a mystery. In fact, I did a little bit of study. I'm not going to bore you perhaps with that part of it. The the author of Hebrews is a mystery and it will remain a mystery. There's no secret code I've been able to uncrack to be able to say I know who the author is. I don't. It's a mystery. There have been lots of suggestions though as I've found out. Even more than I ever imagined. (laughs) Luke is one that is often referenced. James, the brother of, half-brother of Jesus, he's also sometimes linked this particular book. Those are somewhat shaky guesses. Sometimes even scholars have said that this might be the book that Barnabas wrote. Not sure if that one's even more sketchy. The most common assertion, of course, is that this is just a letter from the Apostle Paul that he wrote anonymously. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence for that. But interestingly enough, there's... A compelling case to be made that this is actually a book that the the disciple Apollos wrote. There's a good case, I think, actually for that. But all of which to say, we can only guess who wrote this particular book. It remains anonymous. And ultimately, it doesn't matter who wrote this book. Because if God wants us to know, he would have told us. But I think the whole point that this author, this preacher, if you will, is trying to convey to this church is the one thing, that Jesus is better. And he would even say, he's even better than my name. Doesn't even matter. I can be lost in the greatness and the radiance and the glory of this one I have the privilege and the honor of expounding, he seems to say. Doesn't matter who I am. The truth of Jesus is so much Better. Better than any form of divine relationship or divine religion or divine revelation. This is what we have in Christ. Indeed, that's how I think you could summarize these opening verses. Again, look at them. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Notice he says, long ago. And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken unto us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer here says a lot. In a very short amount of time, you could spend, in fact, weeks, which uh, Lord willing we won't do, but you could, you could spend weeks on just a couple of these verses. As he's asserting a lot, he's declaring a lot and not a few words. And he speaks here, this assertion that God, Jehovah, the creator, is speaking to man. Notice he says, he has been, in many ways and at many times, he's been speaking to his creatures. Which I think 
brings to mind that wonderful truth that we have that this God who created the world, who created everything with a word, is not indifferent to that creation. He doesn't stand on the outside, on, the, on sort of the sidelines, and just watch things as he stands aloof from the things that he brought into existence. He spoke things into existence, and he's never not been speaking to those whom he loves, to those whom he cherishes. He's an involved God. A God who speaks to his creatures is a God who cares. A God who is involved in what they are enduring. And I think indeed the bulk of the Old Testament bears witness to what here this preacher is here saying. That God has been speaking to us. He's been revealing himself to us. Indeed throughout the Old Testament. If you have sort of a mind to it. You can see and notice Instance after instance, we are encountering a God who just cannot wait, it seems like, to reveal himself to his people. He's speaking through prophets, mostly in those days. He would call a prophet of God to minister, what? The word of Yahweh to the people of Yahweh. He's speaking to his people through specific called out voices, mouthpieces, through whom he would reveal what is in his heart, what is in his will. Either he would convict or he would comfort. This has always been God's posture. He's never just been indifferent to the things of this world. He's been involved right where we are, speaking to us. In the Old Testament, it was speaking through prophets. And indeed, every time they would get a new revelation... A new message. All of the the prophets, both major and minor, we are being given sort of a fuller and a clearer glimpse of who this God is. And indeed, all of those revelations form the bedrock of all of what the Jews believed in their religion. For themselves, for thousands of years, they were banking and standing on the pillars of all of those prophets. They clung to that system of faith and practice that was bound up with the words of the law and the prophets. That was the means by which they had any knowledge of God. By which they had any fellowship with their Lord, with their creator at all. And you can see that in Jesus' day. That those to whom Jesus was ministering and speaking and and preaching to, they had this reverence. They had this, this holy sort of awe for those prophets. The prophets of Abraham and Moses and Elijah and David and so on and so forth. They upheld them as authoritative voices of truth. That you cannot talk negatively about those voices of truth. And so you can imagine how scandalous it must have been. Not only in Jesus' day, but in the apostles' day. You have this... New group of religious teachers and preachers getting up and talking about how there's some new prophet that you have to listen to. And he's so much better, he makes all of them else pale in comparison. Because that's essentially what the apostles were doing. Go with me to Acts chapter 4 really quick. I want you to see this. Because we have to get sort of into the mindset of the world in which the apostles were involved the mindset is that we have a religion that is based on prophetic revelation. That is what the Jews clung to. And here you have sort of a new word being spoken through the apostles. And notice what Peter says. Look at Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 11. 
this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We have to see this for the scandal that it was. I hear Peter saying, it doesn't matter what you think about Abraham. It doesn't matter how, how revered, how much reverence you have for Elijah and so on and so forth. All of those prophets, they are good and well. But there is a new name under heaven by which you must be saved. By which all men are saved. And that name is this name, Jesus of Nazareth. You can see then how unimaginably offensive this must have been. Jesus of Nazareth was a name that was associated with a traitor who had been tried and crucified as a common criminal. He was no prophet. He said things that could not be counted for truth. He did miracles, sure. There were some things that we can't explain. There are some things that we cannot decipher between. But surely he wasn't a prophet. Surely he wasn't the one we were supposed to look to. And here Peter is saying, yes, indeed he is. He's the prophet of God. The one who has come to share the new and better word of God. The word regarding forgiveness and remission of sins. And here Peter is saying, he's basically in this little moment, not just declaring the good news. He's also sort of refuting and casting a pall, so to speak, on countless centuries of long-held belief and tradition. That the prophets were good and the ways in which we commune with God were good, but we have something so much better now in Christ. That's essentially what the writer of the Hebrews is saying in verse 2. If you're back in Hebrews 1, verse 2, notice what he says. God is speaking through the prophets, but notice, in these last days, recently, he has spoken to us in a new way, a new form of revelation, a new method by which he gets his people and his creatures to know truly who he is. And how does he do it? By his own son. Here the preacher in this wonderful book has just revealed that the church has been given a new word, a better word from God, from on high. It's not been spoken by some other prophet, by some other man, by some merely human messenger. This word, as he says, is spoken to us by God's own son himself. It comes to us by him, the one, as he says, who is the heir of all things, the very one who spoke and worlds were formed, worlds were created, as he says. This is not just some other messenger, some other preacher, some other guy who's conveying a message because he's been given the message from God. This is God himself giving the word to us. This new word, as he has just here revealed, comes to us from God Himself in the form of flesh. That's the marvel here that the preacher is wanting to get the church to see. You have something so much better. This is who Jesus is. Notice he says in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God. 
And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who has come and declared this new word of revelation to us. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the true and better prophet. Who has come and declared to us who God is. Is the word of God who is the son of God. It's exactly what the apostle John was trying to get us see in the opening of his gospel. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it. As John opens his gospel with, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's here who we are talking about. That very same word, which was in the beginning with God, took on flesh and is now dwelling among us, dwelling among us and dying among us, as he here, the writer of the Hebrew says, making purification for us. What a marvel that we have. Not just some new word of revelation from some person. This is a word of revelation from God himself. God in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that this is who Jesus is. He is God manifested in the flesh. Why? That he might save his people from their sins. That's the gospel that we have here this morning. The gospel that we declare, the gospel that we cling to, that we revere, that we cherish. It announces to us that God himself, the creator, Jehovah God, that one by whom all things has come into being. The one who spoke and light came out of darkness. That one who spoke and shape came out of formlessness. That very God Came to where we are. Came to where we exist. Came and took on flesh for you and I. Why? To purify and redeem the world that he made. That was so fractured and broken from sin. And he accomplished that. As it says in verse 3 again. He after making purification for sins. He sat down. It is finished. His work of redemption was complete at the cross. And it's going to be carried out one day. To its full completion. But as he says here. This author is here trying to get us to see. That all of the world's need is satisfied. In this one who is none other than God himself. Coming to us. Who by dying once for all on the cross gives the world that is full of sin and darkness salvation to the uttermost. This is our belief. This is our hope. This is truly our confidence. That our salvation is complete. We don't have to add anything to it. We don't have to do something extra. We don't have to do something additional to what he himself has done. He's done it. He's sat down. The work of his ministry is complete. And it is concrete. Because again, it's no mere man that was just hanging on the cross. The one who was bleeding out for your sins on that wretched Roman tree wasn't just a man, it wasn't just a teacher, it wasn't just a philosopher or philanthropist or a good humanitarian. It was none other than the incarnate God himself. 
That's what here the preacher is trying to get into your mind's eye, into the mind's eye of all of the churches throughout all of the ages. That the God hanging on the cross is none other than God, the one who spoke and worlds came to be. He made himself part of this world in order that he might reconcile this world to himself. That's the moment of the cross that ought to bring us to our knees. And it shows us again here as he is going to get into that all of those things that existed in the tabernacle and the temple and all of those ways in which the Jews worshipped, that those who were adhering to the, the, the rites and the rituals of Judaism, those things were good, and, but they were meant to show us something so much better. Notice Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Notice what he says. He's talking about the priesthood and all of those utensils and materials that were used in the rituals and the worship of those places. And then he says, they serve, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. They are a copy. A type, a shadow of what was to come. Notice chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It was but a shadow. It was but to represent what was to come. It was a type, as a shadow. It was a, a sort of an image of what was to come in the true and better word, which is Christ. But as Paul tells us, a great verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, or Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But get this, the substance belongs to Christ. And you can hear, see, the author here is saying the same exact thing. The shadow of things is good and well and is right. But we have something so much better because we don't just have a shadow that resembles something else. We have the actual substance of it. Maybe you're getting hungry. I'm getting hungry. Maybe you wish that I would perhaps end this little sermon, which I will soon. And maybe your stomach is reminding you of how hungry you are. I haven't heard any growls from here, but maybe you have where you are. Is notifying you that you're looking forward to fellowshipping very soon. What if I wanted to satisfy your hunger? What good would it do, though, if I plastered an image on the screen of a nice, medium-rare, juicy porterhouse steak? Would it satisfy you in any way? Would it actually quell all of the grumblings that are happening in your stomach right now? Probably not. <laughs> It would do, maybe it would make you satisfied for a little bit, just as you're looking at it, because the thoughts of it would just fill your mind. It actually wouldn't do much for you. It's just an image. It's just a type. It's just a shadow of what actually could be offered. And I'm not trying to, I don't mean to deceive you. I don't have steaks to offer everyone. I wish I did. An image of a steak is not as good as an actual steak. It doesn't do anything for you. It can only do so much. It can do something, but it can't do what an actual steak does. 
And that analogy is kind of crude, but it gets to the heart of what this author of Hebrews is trying to convey. We don't just have something that resembles who God is and what he's like. We have God himself in the gospel showing us who God is. That's who Jesus is. He's not a one who resembles God. He is the sum and substance of who God is. Of who, of what lies at the bottom of God's heart. And indeed, you could say this, that Jesus is the skin and bone version of what God says about himself. All the way back in Exodus 34, verse 6, where God says, He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who Jesus is. He puts skin and bone to that assertion. Why is all this important? Why is all this necessary? A couple of Sunday nights ago, I've referenced this study, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head. I go back to it often. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Ministries, Lifeway Research, they do a survey every two years. I think it's every two years. They do it regularly. It's called the State of Theology. If you've never heard of it, I invite you to read it if you're a nerd for theology facts and whatnot. It's very interesting. It fits my fancy. But you can read it, and basically what they do, they have this series of questions that they pose to individuals all across a broad spectrum of demographics and ages and religious beliefs and affiliations responding to various theological statements. What do you believe about the Trinity and the, and the scriptures and so on and so forth? And then actually what it does, and it makes me very alarmed for where we are in this country where we are in this church. Especially, I think most notably, statement number seven in their report. Statement number seven reads this. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And to that, Christians that we would mostly agree with, Christians that we would probably have a lot in common with, evangelicals as they're termed, agreed with that statement to a degree of 43%. Which is up, by the way, if you're wanting to know, from 2020, which was just at 30%. In two years, we're verging on half of the American evangelical sector not believing that Jesus was God. Not believing in who Jesus was, his true identity. This, it should be alarming to you as it is to me. Almost half of the American church is veering so far off from what is basic and what is fundamental and what is the, the, the true groundwork of all of our hope and faith and belief. Jesus says quite plainly in John 14, 9, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He doesn't try to be cagey about it. He hasn't tried to go around the topic. He hasn't tried to hide who he was. He's not like God. He doesn't resemble God. He is God. God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Colossians 2.9, in him that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's what we have in Jesus. That's what we have in Christ. 
He's God in the form of flesh and blood. And without that belief, the entire Christian faith collapses. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are all people most to be pitied. Because our belief is vain, it's, it's hopeless. If Jesus is not God, there is no once for all death by which our sins are paid, are paid for in full. If Jesus is not God, there is no resurrection. It's just a hoax, it's a fancy, it's a fairy tale. If Jesus is not God, there is no salvation. There is no hope. This, you see, is the groundwork of all that we believe. Jesus is not just a man. Not just a, an image of who God is. He is God. That's what our faith is predicated on. That triumphant fact that God hasn't just told us what to believe, told us how to act, told us how to get our lives straight. He has come and shown us what that looks like. He has shown us that he will do anything possible, even to the point of laying down his own life in order to save those who could never save themselves. And this is what he has done. You want to talk about theological truth that can change lives, change everything? Theology that, just, just, that doesn't just stay in a classroom? It's the theological truth that Jesus is God the Father in the form of flesh. He is the Son of God come down to where we are and he has taken his place on the cross. This very God who hangs on a cross with nails in his hands, is the very God who spoke all things into being. That's the stunning magnitude of what we believe in the gospel. The crucified God is the God who spoke everything into being and who bleeds out for you and I to have salvation. This is what makes the gospel of Christ so much better, so far superior to any previous revelation of who God is. Because it's not just some other person telling us. It's God himself showing us. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God values and esteems and how God would interact with sinners, look at Jesus. Look at what he did. If you want to know how truly valuable you are in the eyes of God, look at Jesus. He valued you so much that he took your place on the cross. He took your place of eternal condemnation. That's how worthy you are in his eyes. And you're not worthy because of you. You're worthy because he makes you worthy. That's how much he loves you. That's how much God cares. It's always been in the heart of God to redeem sinful man from his sins. And now in Christ, that redemption is here. And not just a theory of it, not just a shadow of it. Is here in the form of flesh and blood. And now we can truly say, Jesus is better. We have a new and better word that is encapsulated in this new and better gospel. That we have redemption and remission of sins because God himself has taken up all of our, our, of our griefs, all of our burdens, all of our sorrows, all of our cares, all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of that. 
and he's put it to death. This is what we believe, church. I think there's no truer theological truth in this that we need in the church today. I see it all over the scriptures, this idea that who Jesus is makes it so profound what Jesus did. He is God in the form of flesh, come to save the world, come to save you. We don't have an image, we have the substance. Jesus is better. Let us pray.